This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Eamon Publishing, publisher of Canada's leading law school casebooks, wants you to know that you can purchase all of its titles directly from it using eamon.ca. We know students are concerned about the rising costs of their education, including the cost of casebooks and materials. By purchasing directly from Eamon, you can get the newest editions of all of our titles at close to the price of used copies from the bookstore. Through eamon.ca, you also get the advantage of lower costs, no lineups, and quick direct shipping. Also, by joining Eamon Plus, you get free shipping within Canada, 15% off all pre-publication titles, members-only flash sales, and other incentives. Get the leading casebooks at the best prices at eamon.ca. For a limited time, get 10% off the purchase of any law school casebook by entering the code LAWSCHOOL10 in the promo code box. Okay, so thank you so much for coming on to the show, Jen. I really appreciate having you here. Before we begin, I want to give our listeners some background into who you are and why I've invited you onto the show. So Jennifer Metcalf is the Executive Director of Prisoners Legal Services, a clinic that provides legal aid to prisoners in British Columbia regarding liberty and human rights issues. She has worked as a lawyer at Prisoners Legal Services since 2006. Jennifer is the Vice President of the Canadian Prison Law Association, and is a member of the Canadian Bar Association Committee on Imprisonment and Release. Jennifer received her law degree from the University of British Columbia and was called to the bar in 2004. She articled at Sierra Legal Defense Fund, which is now EcoJustice, and then worked at a union-side labor firm. She has an undergraduate degree in Native Studies from Trent University, and I had the pleasure of first meeting Jen this past summer as I was completing a public interest fellowship with Prisoners Legal Services, which was an absolutely wonderful opportunity. And I, I'd encourage all students to check that out. All right. So thank you again for being here, Jen. How about we start off the episode by talking a little bit about what Prisoners Legal Services is and their mandate and that sort of thing. Thanks, Haley. It's really nice to see you again. And thanks for inviting me to um, participate in this podcast. So yeah, um, Prisoners Legal Services is a legal aid clinic for federal and provincial prisoners in BC. So we administer all of the prison law related legal aid um, to people in BC other than appeals. Um, So that means that we deal with um, prison law at the administrative law level. So we're helping people with disciplinary hearings. Um, we, we primarily focus on issues that affect people's liberty under Section 7 of the Charter. So we're helping with um, parole issues, detention, post-suspension. So if somebody was in the community on conditional release and they have their parole suspended and are, they're returned to custody, then we can provide them with a lawyer to represent them at that hearing. Um, We also help with involuntary transfers to higher levels of security um, and probably most significantly with um, solitary confinement. And then we have other funding to help people with human rights and healthcare issues. Um, So that funding we're focusing more on um, 
strategic litigation on, on human rights and um, in addressing the systemic issues that we see uh, coming to us when we're working with people on an individual level. Excellent. So it, I, I sort of think back to one of the first things that you and your colleagues had said to me when I started at uh, Prisoners Legal Services is that prison law is essentially anything that affects inmates in the institutions. So it's a, it's a very broad area of the law. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, we, we don't help people with everything, but, um, but like any issue that they experience while they're in custody that affects their liberty and human rights. Um, and then we also have a range of public legal education uh, material that we can send to people on issues that we're not able to help them with, like property issues and visits and things like that. So yeah, it, it, it is a pretty broad area of law and it's a very um, unique and specific area. So, um, but it is administrative law. So if people are interested in working on prison law in their careers, then make sure that you take admin law while you're in law school. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I hadn't taken admin law before starting with you guys, but I'm actually currently in my semester taking admin law and we're just covering Vavlov. So I'm starting to understand a bit more of what I was learning in the summer. That's excellent, Jen. Thank you. So I'm wondering, what was it that drew you to prison law in the first place and then more specifically prisoners legal services? Uh, well, in my undergrad, I was um, in the Native Studies program, which I'm sure is now called Indigenous Law. Um, and I was doing student journalism and I was doing a lot of activism. So I was um, going to protests about um, political prisoners like Mumia Abu-Jamal. And I was kind of involved in the Leonard Pelche Defense Committee and um and then I actually had a friend who was on, who had a life sentence, who was on parole. He'd been involved in a robbery gone bad when he was 18 and was um, so serving a life sentence. And um, it really kind of opened my eyes that that prisoner human rights are, are really important, not just around political prisoners, but that everyone in custody really is, is a political prisoner because it has to do with poverty and racism and colonialism and doing taking um, Native studies um, and learning about colonialism and residential schools and then the high rates of incarceration or the mass incarceration of Indigenous people in prisons in Canada, um, you know, made me think that um, prisoner rights are so fundamental. Um, and so I was, and I had some friends, I was also doing student journalism. So I was kind of covering some court cases, um, including the death of Robert Gentles, who was a black prisoner at Kingston Penn, who was killed by six prison guards. So I was actually sued for libel um, for calling them murderers. So that kind of introduced me to the world of law. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, so some of my friends were going to law school. I didn't really think that it was anything. It was nothing that I'd ever considered before. I don't have any lawyers in my family, but um, 
it did seem like it would help me to be a more effective activist. And um, then I learned about Michael Jackson, who used to teach penal policy at UBC and has written a number of books and articles about prisoner rights and also Indigenous law. So, um, so I was interested in working with him and yeah, now he's the president of the West Coast Prison Justice Society, which is our board of directors. So it's been a real honor to take his classes and also um, to work under his direction. So, um, yeah. Wow, I, that's, that's so cool. I, I suppose that then um, your your career in law was really born out of that passion for activism and for fighting for the rights of prisoners like you were talking about, which I think is very, very interesting, really cool, very admirable. And so I'm wondering, especially with in relation to what you were mentioning about colonialism and residential schools and everything, I'm wondering how prisoners' legal services is also assisting with those issues and, and how that might be something that the society is exploring more. Uh, yeah, we have a, a grant right now to work on a report um, that will hopefully bring to the forefront um, the voices of Indigenous people in prison um, to learn from them what, you know, what... what what they're experiencing and what they think would help them um, to get out of the criminal system. Um, we've also been consulting with the BC First Nation Justice Council, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and some other Indigenous communities and organizations about alternatives, like what alternatives would be consistent with Indigenous law to incarceration. And I think... Um, just all the news recently about the children's bodies found at, or, you know, known by Indigenous communities, but confirmed with um, technology, I guess, <laughs> the, has really kind of made people think more about colonialism and the impact of residential schools. And it's kind of prompted us to take a more principled stance on decarceration and viewing the incarceration of Indigenous people as a continuation of that genocidal practice. Um, and so um, I don't think it's appropriate for any Indigenous person to be held in a colonial prison. But at this point, there are very few alternatives available because of an intentional lack of funding for Indigenous communities to be able to provide those kinds of healing alternatives for people. And also, obviously, um, community-based supports for people before they end up in the criminal system. Um, so we're really hoping to support Indigenous communities and First Nations in self-determination and healing to, to prevent people from entering the justice system in the first place and then to get people out and um, into more culturally appropriate healing environments. Absolutely. That, that's really well said. So it sounds like in addition to assisting at the legal stage uh, through the clinic that uh, Prisoners Legal Services is also focused on that prevention aspect and really understanding the reasons why there is such uh, so many Indigenous peoples who are incarcerated at a very disproportionate rate. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's really excellent, um, and I think it highlights the the depth and the importance of the work that PLS does. And so, speaking about that, I'm wondering if maybe for some of our students listening, you can discuss in a bit more depth some of the areas of law that PLS deals with under their mandate that you were mentioning to us in the beginning, and sort of what that looks like. Uh, Maybe we can start with helping inmates who have been placed into solitary confinement. Sure. Um, So we've seen a lot of changes in the administration of um, the use of solitary confinement in recent years with all of the challenges that have found Correctional Service Canada's previous um, segregation regime unconstitutional. both as an infringement of liberty rights under Section 7, um, as cruel and unusual treatment or punishment under Section 12. Um, And so the government passed Bill C-83, which all the headlines in the newspaper said that Canada was abolishing segregation, which people equate with solitary confinement. Um, Solitary confinement under the United Nations definition is the confinement of someone to their or without meaningful human contact for 22 or more hours per day. And so um, in response to all that litigation, the Correctional Service of Canada governing legislation now provides for structured intervention units. Um, But we're seeing those units operated pretty much in the same way as as the um, segregation units. And so people are still being held in conditions that meet the definition of solitary confinement. Um, Now the legislation requires people to be provided an opportunity to be out of their cell for four hours a day um, with at least two hours of meaningful human contact. So even with that definition, if people are out of their cell and they're alone in a small cage outside or they're um, alone on their unit or having a shower or whatever it is, I guess shower isn't included, but, um, you know, if it only requires for at least two hours of meaningful human contact, it's still walking the line of that definition of solitary confinement. So, and even with those requirements, we're seeing from the Dr. Tony Dube and Jane Sprott reports that CSE is still engaging in really high rates of solitary confinement. And in 10% of cases, it reaches the level of what the UN considers to be torture or cruel treatment. Um, We're also seeing an increase in the use of other kinds of restrictions on liberties that meet the definition of solitary confinement or kind of walk that line or um, impose really restrictive measures that are creating so much isolation that it's affecting people's mental health through restrictive movement routines and lockdowns, Um, especially with COVID we saw at Mission where there was a major outbreak last year that um, people were held in total isolation for a number of days and then in conditions that meet the definition of solitary confinement for um, months. So um, yeah, we're we're really concerned about the other ways that um, Correctional Service Canada is keeping people in isolation. We're also seeing the use of observation cells for people who are um, suicidal or self-harming, which is 
you know, the worst possible thing you could do to somebody who is in that mental state, um, because we know that isolation increases the risk of suicide and self-harm. So yeah, those are the ways that we are trying to support people and prevent the use of solitary confinement. So it sounds like you were saying, even though, you know, the media might be projecting this one message of solitary confinement being abolished, it sounds like there are many different ways that that practice is still being upheld within institutions, whether it's called solitary or not, it's still being practiced and is still something that is quite at the forefront of what advocates such as yourself are, are trying to um, protect prisoners against. Yeah, that's right. And, and you had mentioned um, also with COVID-19 and how that's also having an impact on these types of practices. I was wondering actually about some of the other unique challenges to access to justice that uh, prisoners and also the organization might be facing when there are so many different moving parts and new policies and changes in response to the pandemic. Yeah, um, it's been really concerning, I think, both federally and provincially, the um, because um, prisoners are so vulnerable to um, COVID because of the close living confinement um, circumstances that they live in. Um, so we, you know, a lot of the services have been cancelled and and we haven't been able to go in you know, I think that things are opening up now, but um, it's really concerning when prisons are operating behind closed doors without any kind of external oversight. We've been trying to provide legal aid to people held in structured intervention units, but then we are faced with some obstructionism on the right to counsel where people haven't, we haven't been able to get people's documents who are held in structured intervention units and the administration won't tell the lawyers or legal advocates the date and time of hearings, which makes it very difficult to organize legal aid to have someone go and represent the person at a hearing when they don't know when it is, or the issues, (laughs) Um, any of the allegations, um, any of the consideration of alternatives to structured intervention units made it very difficult for us to be able to fulfill our mandate of providing legal aid for liberty rights um, when that's the most restrictive like way of holding someone allowed by legislation so yeah (laughs) (laughs) that would definitely make it extremely difficult to administer the services that you're you're attempting to provide. I'm wondering, do you anticipate now that things we're starting to see things open up a bit more, do you anticipate that this will improve or will it take some time before we see more accessible justice within institutions? Um, I hope it will improve. We used to have a, a legal aid clinic at Kent, the maximum security prison in BC in their segregation unit But before COVID, that clinic was canceled, but unilaterally by the institution. Um, And that was really important in allowing us to go in and reach out to people who might not come out of their cell. You know, one of the, the 
um, symptoms of long-term isolation is a tendency to further self-isolate. And so people who are so depressed and hopeless and who are impacted by long-term isolation in segregation or structured intervention unit, whatever they call it, might not come out of their cell and feel comfortable phoning strangers for assistance or might not even know that we exist because there aren't legal aid clinics like us in other jurisdictions in Canada. So, and just having a presence in that unit, I think really helped to put a check on staff culture and make sure that the conditions of confinement were not really horrendous. We hear reports about people being put into cells that are contaminated by other people's feces and blood and pepper spray and being able to be present physically in that space and to be able to witness the conditions of confinement, I think is really, really important. So we've been hearing those kinds of reports provincially too, where I think that the investigation and standards office who's supposed to be doing inspections hasn't been doing them because of COVID. So I do hope that opening things up will allow for more outside people to come in and be witnesses. I don't know if Kent Institution will allow us to reestablish our clinic. We will ask, but so far our requests have been denied. Okay, okay. So more a need for more oversight, which unfortunately has maybe fallen a bit to the wayside due to COVID-19 and ha- and and then hopefully, fingers crossed, that uh, the legal clinic can be reinstated at Kent, Kent Institution because I, I agree that it's important to have that type of contact. And I think it's also very interesting what you were mentioning about one of the long-term side effects of such constant isolation. I think that's something that maybe even myself, I'm not as aware of those types of things that come with solitary confinement. I think, of course, you know, instinctively, we know that it's a it's a very horrible thing to have to undergo. But then to hear about such visceral and long term side effects that it can produce, I think it just reemphasizes the importance of having different uh, organizations such as PLS. And I'm wondering, so one of the things that really made me interested in the organization at first is that it is the only organization of its kind in Canada. So I'm wondering how that came to be and if there is a possibility for more organizations like PLS to happen in other provinces or if more would be possible within BC. Yeah, we would love um, to see more legal aid available um, in other jurisdictions and also in our own. We've we've been having problems with being unable to meet the demand on our services, which is really stressful for our staff who are very, you know, compassionate people who then take on too high workloads. And it's, it's really hard to sustain that kind of work when we're not properly resourced, but yeah, the, the other clinic that has a really significant positive impact on prisoner rights is the Queen's prison law clinic at in Kingston. But uh, yeah, we would love to see our kind, our model in other jurisdictions. I think it's really important in, in some jurisdictions where it's more of a legal aid certificate model where lawyers get um, funding to represent people at individual hearings. I think you kind of miss the top site that we have. So 
you know, for example, the the COVID outbreak at Mission, when we didn't get any calls for eight days from Mission, we, you know, we were pretty concerned about what was going on. And then when we started getting calls from people reporting a lockdown, um, where everyone in the entire institution was held in total solitary confinement, um, with no time out of their cell for eight days, and then for maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes um, every couple of days, you know, um, we were able to to see like the numbers and to be able to share those reporting with people's consent to the media and so that people in the community knew what was happening. And then I think through our human rights work, when we, we see these trends of issues that are happening, like the treatment of people with mental health disabilities and being subjected to disproportionately to uses of force and isolation, then we're able to kind of focus on those issues and try to get some real systemic remedies, um, changes to the system. So I think it would be wonderful for uh, legal aid to fund similar agencies in other jurisdictions as well. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. And what you were just saying there about, you know, advocating for this systemic change when we see uh, reoccurring issues, what, especially with what you were talking about with inmates who are suffering from various mental illnesses. I'm wondering how how does PLS take an active role in that and what might that look like in advocating for a, such a large systemic change? Well, right now we have a representative human rights complaint on behalf of people in prison with mental health disabilities. So that's before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Um, We're lucky to be represented by counsel in that case. And so we're trying to um, address a lot of those really big systemic issues around um, uses of force and isolation on people with the highest level of mental health need and looking at real alternatives. We're also looking at the issue of the over, like the mass <laughs> incarceration of Indigenous people at higher levels of security and the lack of investment in alternatives like Indigenous-run healing lodges. So yeah, we are bringing that to the Human Rights Tribunal, and um, we're we're really hoping that we're going to be successful in getting some really meaningful changes to the way people are treated. Absolutely. And I I definitely share that hope as well. And I think that's just another great example of the type of work that you guys are doing and are so compassionate about. Uh, And I hope that there's some students out here who are listening who also feel the same way about this type of work and uh, about this advocacy. And I'm wondering if, if there are students who are feeling this way, what would your advice and recommendation be to them? How should they further pursue this interest if they're just starting law school, almost finishing, or if there are people out there who are currently in practice and maybe want to take a bit of an active role in this type of advocacy? What do you think that they should do? Um, Well, I've already mentioned take admin law. (laughs) Um, I think in law school, there's a tendency to teach people that to be a good lawyer, you have to be really emotionally disengaged from your clients and you have to be able to argue both sides of issues. And I think for 
people who want to do social justice law as a career, I don't think that that's true. Um, I think like for me, it's important that people, you know, when I'm looking at resumes, I want to see people who are really passionate about anti-oppression work and, um, and, you know, it's a, people who are able to go to law school and become lawyers are, are privileged and are in a position to be able to do, you know, do what's right and to change the world. And yeah, I would encourage people to do that. <laughs> there, if, if people are interested in working with prisoners legal services, I think that the University of Ottawa has a program where you can volunteer with us for credit. And is that how you came to Beth Haley? I can't remember how you were. Yes, I came through a fellowship. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so um, that's great. Talk to Haley if you're interested in or your career service office. And um, we'd love to have you because it was great to have you, Haley. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, I wholeheartedly endorse anybody who is interested specifically in prisoners legal services. It was a wonderful opportunity. If you're looking for hands on client work, to really feel passionate about the type of work you're doing and to be mentored by some very brilliant people who are also lovely to work with, then I would definitely encourage you to pursue fellowship opportunities. They're wonderful to work for. And definitely a great starting point to see if you're interested in this area and part of law. So thank you very much, Jen. I really appreciate your time on the podcast and all the insights that you provided us with. It makes me feel very excited about this type of work. And it makes me reflect more on the summer that I had with your organization. And I'm very grateful for that time that I did have. Well, thank you again for inviting me. And thanks for your kind words. Oh, of course. Okay, we'll talk to you later, Jen. Thanks. Bye. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.